When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael Winslow from Police Academy, Wonder Infinity, and Spaceballs with Mel Brooks, and you are listening to Canned Air. Inhale it and enjoy. End message. everyone and welcome to another episode of Candare, your tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. And I am Randy Hardenbrook. And boy, do we have an exciting episode for you today. Our guest today, very special guest, is a producer and owner of 1895 Films, which has done things like uh, Martin Luther King, The Assassination, Apollo, Missions to the Moon, Diana in her own words, uh, The Real Right Stuff, and my God, just countless other things and a podcast, The Artifactual, which is uh, just a podcast all about archival material, such as like audio of somebody who witnessed the Lincoln assassination or audio of the attack on Pearl Harbor via a radio broadcast and many other just cool things. Today, we welcome Peabody and Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Tom Jennings to the show. What a conversation it was. Yeah. It's fine. These people can know we recorded the okay. conversation before <laughs> we're doing the intro, but Randy's right. Uh, damn, what a conversation. It, it was a lot of fun. It was one of those conversations where we figured it would be about 20, 30 minutes, and it ended up being over an hour. And and worth every second. It didn't even seem like an hour, no, man. No, we were <laughs> totally enraptured. And this guy is literally like the uh, the Indiana Jones of uh, just archival yeah, stuff. I mean, absolutely. Just the story behind what it takes and to find some of the stuff that he's put in his programs is. I can't imagine the production that goes into one of these projects he's done, let alone all of them. Right, right. My God. So uh, I'm very excited for you guys to hear that. But before we get to that, don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air and Patreon.com forward slash CandarePod. Or you can just head to our website, CandarePodcast.com, where for 5 or $10 a month, depending on what you want to uh, get, you can become a patron and get access to the Candare Patreon pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of other shows we have on there, other the projects. Human Fly. Many, many, many things that you won't find here with the, for the normies, you know? Right, right. The, uh, this is the special. This is the... the, the behind the scenes, the, the us having fun, us being us. The, this is the Candare Underground stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're talking about. So, <laughs> CandarePodcast.com. Click on that Patreon button. Or if you want to show your support in another way, there's merchandise on there, T-shirts, mugs, stickers, all that kind of stuff. And if you don't have uh, the fi- financial means to support us, then uh, just get on iTunes or your podcast player of choice and leave us a review because people, let me tell you what, I promise you, it definitely helps. We're not just over here fluffing our ego like, oh, someone likes us. They left us a five-star review. <laughs> no, it actually really helps in getting us exposure uh, to leave those reviews. So that helps as well. Uh, what else we got, Randy? So your boys are proud members of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Check us out on evergreenpodcast.com. See all the other shows. Check us out. And, uh, you know, as you're sitting around the Christmas tree this Yuletide season, just go ahead and tell your friends, your family about the Candid Podcast. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, what are you, you going to do, like open presents and drink eggnog? I mean, come on, man. Fuck that. Turn on the Candid Christmas <laughs> special. We got a good one coming this year. It's not recorded yet, but the plans are in the works, and it's going to be a good little little number and I'm I pretty will. excited about. Is there anything else? Am I forgetting anything? I think we're good. All right, then let's just get right to our conversation with Tom Jennings. Tom, thank you so much for being here, man. Hey, guys. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy your show, and it's an honor to be on. 
Well, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you, you know, looking into your, anyone who owns a TV has seen your work. There's <laughs> no way they haven't. What was it? Like National Geographic, Discovery, History Channel, uh, Netflix, Disney. You've been all over the place and with great content at that. You know, there are so many documentaries that touch on the things you've talked about, but most of them are just kind of spoon feeding you stuff they that you already know. This is stuff that people don't know, the kind of behind the scenes stuff that gets lost in the mix. Mm -hmm. It's just entertaining to no end. So I'm very excited to talk about that stuff. But before we get there, let's find out a little bit about yourself. Like we were just talking before we started recording. You grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, correct? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm very proud of it. As you I should love, be, sir. <laughs> I love Cleveland. And um, I uh, went to Kent State University in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a journalism degree from there. I was a print reporter. And that's all I wanted to be for the rest of my life was to be a reporter. And uh, I found it to be a noble calling. And I wanted to right wrongs with the world, um, right. you know, and we were, Kent State has an uh, excellent journalism program. And we were definitely taught by great people about what it meant to be a really good reporter. And I always make this distinction between today uh, and back then, they would have never allowed us to have Twitter accounts. No. You know, uh, yeah. if you're a reporter, <laughs> you do not have an opinion. Even if you have an opinion, you don't express it because people will start to wonder, are you giving me an accurate story? Right. So, yeah. um, so I went to Kent State and then I worked for three years as a reporter in Washington, D.C. at a small paper. Uh, you know, I went to Washington because uh, this was in the uh, shadow of the Watergate days, uh, you okay. know, uh, much later. But sure. everybody still wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein, right. as did I. <laughs> and I remember I got uh, into the Washington Post for an interview. I think they were just humoring me. And they said, you know what Washington is? It's 12,000 journalists in search of a story. So guess what? You got to go out somewhere else outside of Washington. Again, Kent State helped me out. The dean of the School of Journalism was friends with the editor of a paper here in Los Angeles uh, called the LA Daily News, second to the Times. And they needed new reporters. And... Uh, they had a, a hit, the managing editor was in Washington. I mean, this is how fast life can change. You know, people always say in any business, it's who you know, sure. but it's who you know at the perfect time. You can know <laughs> a lot of people, but sure. at the perfect time. So I got this phone call from the Dean of the School of Journalism on a Tuesday morning. I called the editor in Los Angeles he said, oh, yeah, I've heard lots of good things about you. And he said, my managing editor is in Washington right now. He's coming home tonight. Can you meet him today? And I said, sure, you know, because I saw this as a great opportunity. Like most people in the Midwest, Ohio, you always think, one day, California. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, That's right. what we're thinking on a daily basis, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so... I went down, I met him at, in a, at the bar of the Willard Hotel, which is right next to the White House. And he interviewed, you know, uh, we sat there for like an hour. He asked me a lot of questions. He was going out to Dulles Airport for a flight that night. He called me at 6.30 from the airport and hired me. Wow. And wow. in a week, I was moving to Los Angeles. That's crazy. And so everything turned on a dime. And so I was in L.A. as a reporter for several different newspapers in the um, first half of the 1990s. And that was like, a you know, I was a very young reporter, but it was the go-go time out here for journalism. 
I covered things like the Menendez trial. Was and saying, a lot of stuff happened in that time. Yeah. We had the Northridge earthquake, which was horrendous. Um, we had a lot of fires and floods, you know, no, never a dull moment in Southern California. And then I covered the OJ Simpson trial. Oh my God, oh, wow. man. And, um, you know, uh, remember I come from Ohio and this very idealistic approach to writing sure. and being mm -hmm. a journalist. And it was exciting for about two weeks. Uh, <laughs> I was in the courtroom, not all the time, but, you know, I see OJ and, uh, and, I really burned out. Yeah, I don't know if you guys recall or know there was, you know, there were hundreds of reporters in a parking lot across the street oh, yeah. from the criminal courts building. And um, they called it Camp OJ. I still have, the, we made t-shirts. <laughs> and uh, I just started to think this is a joke. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it was like, the first reality show. And I didn't want to be part of a reality show. I didn't, you know, it was fascinating. And, you know, the nation was gripped by it because of OJ's celebrity. And, you know, you had uh, uh, everything that went, and don't forget the Kardashians got their start back then. Because oh, yes. Robert Kardashian was a friend of OJ's. He's the one that pleaded with OJ, if you remember, right. to please turn yourself in. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore, but what do I do? And again, uh, I can't emphasize this enough. You know, it's the relationships you have, but at the right time. And I had become friends with uh, an NPR reporter who was covering the trial. And I, her name's Kitty Feldy. And she, we talked one day and I said, Kitty, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what to do. What, you know, I have these skills as a writer, you know, um, and my skills as a writer are God given in that I didn't practice it. I was the guy in high school that wrote everybody's papers for them. I don't know where it came from. No one in my family was the writer or a journalist. It was just the one thing that I could do without working really hard. Okay, and, sure. you <laughs> you know, this was natural, like riding a bike. <laughs> so Kitty Feldy said, well, uh, she had just been approached because she's in what we called electronic media, radio okay. and television. And back then in the courthouse, there was a print side on the ninth floor of the building. And then there was the electronic side. And there the two shall meet uh, because the print people knew that the electronic people were stealing all our stuff. Tough because they weren't good reporters uh, you know they they okay. would have producers that would report so anyway um kitty said i just got a call from a friend of mine who has a production company he's got a, a show for discovery channel and this is in the early days of cable remember okay. 1995 the, the trial ended september 95 this was toward the end of 95 and they had this series uh, called Rivals, and Rivals was like biography, if you remember that, when biography was real biography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> At the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, but so it was that, but it was two people. So one act, you know, a, a perfect example was they did a really good episode on George Wallace and Martin Luther King. Okay. They were true rivals. They had this one episode left that none of their writers wanted to take on because it was Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, you know, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> they, they didn't know each other. Right, you know, they, right. they, uh, they weren't true rivals. So I met with the guy and, uh, you know, he, he was desperate. He needed this thing written. And I wanted out of journalism. So I said, sure. I'll, but, you know, and he goes, well, I don't know if I can hire you uh, because uh, you've never written in this form before. And, you know, the year, uh, year prior, I'd been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting. You know, I had a thousand stories under my belt. 
And I said, just show me what you think is a good script for nonfiction television. Just show me a couple and I'll make it like that. So they gave me all the information, uh, the interview. They had already done the interviews. And for me, it was like writing a long feature story for the Sunday paper. You know, uh, that's about the amount of text that's in there. So they gave me all this stuff and I really wanted to like impress them. And like three days later, you know, this before email, (laughs) three days later, I brought the script back in and he said, uh, what are you doing here? I said, well, I finished the script. He said, what do you mean you finished the script? Remember, I'm a daily journalist that I'm used to writing fast. I said, well, I finished it. He started, he read it and he was, you know, I, I, I liken it to the Princess Bride and the Dread Pirate Roberts, where <laughs> they'd say, you know, good job, Tom. We'll probably have to fire you tomorrow. Right, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> he read it and he was stunned because most people in nonfiction television had um, never, uh, you know, uh, they weren't true writers. Okay. And so they were... Um, uh, they were they were used to having writers go away for three or four weeks, and I came back in three days. And they said, "Oh, can you write another one?" Sure. And then word got around in the nonfiction community: "Hey, there's this guy that can crank out these scripts, and they really <laughs> needed scripts." And so uh, writing led to producing because I was in the right place at the right time. They needed someone to go interview people. And they said, well, Jennings has interviewed people because he was a reporter. And so I went out and then I learned from camera crews all about how to make television. You know, uh, it's true that if you show a genuine interest in what people do, um, they will love to tell you about it. I had learned that as a reporter, but you really have to be authentic. And these crews taught me everything. It was like my film school. And then I got into directing. And uh, a few years later, again, right place, right time, a guy I had known at um, one of the production companies where I was a writer had left, moved to Washington, D.C. And uh, he was now an executive at Discovery Channel. And we had a shared interest of the Grateful Dead. I remember we had long conversations about that. Deadheads, were you following them around the country? Uh, yes, I didn't follow them, but I like them. He followed them. Okay. Um, so he, um, he said, uh, you know, keep in touch. And I found this show. This is when Discovery was starting to make all the car shows. Right. And um, I had found this wacky guy in orange county that actually had um created the first stretch limousine like uh uh, you're probably too young but in the 70s the doobie brothers had this the the band the doobie brothers had Mm -hmm. this stretch limousine with like a a hot tub in the middle of it yes well well what most people don't know about limousines is you know uh general motors doesn't make a mercedes doesn't make a limousine uh, companies that stretch them buy the original cars and then yeah, after market are the ones that create. And this guy was a madman and he was really funny and he had this cadre of people around him. And I called my friend at Discovery. Again, bright moment. They're looking for these car shows. I told them about Vinny. Of course, his name is Vinny. And um, <laughs> <laughs> they bought 13 episodes. I didn't even have a company. <laughs> and so I had to put a company together and that was in 2004. And um, I can proudly say we've been going ever since, you know, sometimes we're busier than others, but we've done pretty well. You mentioned the Martin Luther King show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we won the Peabody award for that, which is very hard to win. Um, we won an Emmy for our 2016 anniversary show about the Challenger space shuttle disaster and uh, our Apollo film that you mentioned, uh, Apollo Missions to the Moon. This is probably the most mind-blowing for 
not that the others weren't mind blowing, but being a kid from Cleveland, we won a category in the Producers Guild of America Award and we uh, in films for streaming or television. And we beat out the film versions of like Deadwood oh, wow. and Black Mirror. I mean, Jeez. you know, when they called my name, you know, the film's name, and here's the mind blowing part. I walked up to the podium and the Producers Guild of America is very serious about the people they get to come. Like Brad Pitt had given a big speech that night and I'm standing at this podium, you know, trying to remember what to say. And I look down and there's the um, director and cast of The Irishman. Like I'm talking to Martin Scorsese. Wow. Wow. It was like, that's how you know you what made it. What the hell? <laughs> that must have been so surreal. <laughs> it was. It, I mean, just thinking of it now, I'd still, I'd start to disassociate. I can't figure out how I wound up there, but Incredible. I did. And I'm very, very grateful. So but that's perhaps a longer version than you need, but that's how I wound up talking to you guys today. That's absolutely perfect. And we can see on the, uh, I know the listeners can't see, but we're, you know, we can see you on video here, all these awards behind you, including said Emmy. Uh, you must be doing something right, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I am. You know, I read somewhere that uh, uh, people who put up all their awards in their office are really insecure. But my wife <laughs> says, you won them you should show them off absolutely yeah, that is like yeah that's a, i think that's the people lot. who say that haven't won any awards <laughs> is the problem yeah there was one guy i was talking with uh not too long ago where he said oh well that's a nice wall behind you and you know i said yeah and i won every one of them and yeah. it was a lot of blood sweat and tears so we i even have you you may you, for you guys and what you do speaking of scorsese i we won what's called the lumiere award one year uh you may recall about 6 7 years ago the next big thing was going to be 3D TV oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i do remember it was that a yes network called three net. And, uh, I knew, again, I knew one of the executives there and, um, you know, they were making all of these shows in 3d and there are these things called stereographs. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're from, um, like the civil war through about 1920. And you get these special, uh, kind of, a a, a holder, and you put it in and it's real 3D of like uh, yes. going across the desert in okay. 1901, uh, looking at the pyramids. And the idea was that, hey, if you can't go there, we can take you there. And okay. they're fascinating. So I wanted to do something with stereographs. He said, uh, and so what, and we wound up doing that, but their request was, can you find stereographs or 3d images of the vietnam war and i'm like that's not the era i'm talking about right and uh i knew that in the 1960s 3d had fallen out of favor you know there there weren't any but i went to a uh stereograph convention everybody has a convention these days <laughs> yes. and i found on a table a little self-published book by a vietnam helicopter pilot and just to cut to the chase this guy's entire life was in 3d his family they live on a farm in florida oh, he took what he would do is he would take these stereographic photographs of his life in Vietnam, he would record audio tapes and he'd send the whole batch back to his wife and young sons so that they could understand what he was going through. Oh, wow. And wow. I, as far as anyone knows, it's uh, they are the only 3D photographs taken during the Vietnam War era. And I found it by dumb luck, but you know, it's always the, you know, uh, you're not gonna, thousand doors and it's the thousand and one door that opens up 
And so we won this, the Lumiere brothers were the uh, first ones to create the motion picture camera. Actually, our, uh, the company name, 1895, people say, oh, is that like your address? And I'm like, no, that was the year of the first motion picture camera. Oh. It's when the train came through this, because we do yeah. a lot of history programs. Sure. So we thought it was like a little tip of the hat. So we won this award and it was the same year that uh, Martin Scorsese, again, crossed paths with him, uh, did Hugo in 3D. He did this beautiful film in 3D. And so he got an award and then our award was announced next. So we kind of like <laughs> passed each other on this. <laughs> How cool. Someday I think I, I, I'm bound to work with him because I keep showing up at the same place as he does but yeah all the hardware behind me is hard fought for and you know hard won yeah and well deserved right. i don't understand the person uh who who gives you shit about having those out <laughs> what are you supposed to do with these awards put them in a closet yeah you've I know. earned them they are beautiful <laughs> right. to look at and they have such stories yeah. attached to them yeah that's, that's jealousy talking is what that is I mean, if you ask me that's your journey behind you and yeah. yeah it is all the way from cleveland ohio you better believe if i had an emmy It'd be sitting right here. <laughs> he, he, he'd pan me out of it and it'd just be right here on the table. He'd be sitting where Randy is. <laughs> Let's see what the Emmy has to say about it. Yeah. Randy, Randy, you're hogging the camera. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, there's so many works that you've done. You know, the mm. ones I'd already mentioned, you've kind of touched mm. on. Uh, even some more, you know, like the Lost Tapes, the Clinton impeachment. Holy mm. cow, I want to see that. Um, OJ Speaks, the Ted Bundy Death Row Tapes, and on and on and on that list goes. I'm curious as to what has been maybe your favorite or the most interesting, like what what which one mm. you took the most from? Oh, there, there have been many. I'll highlight a couple. One thing that I, you know, when we do these all archive films, like the assassination of Martin Luther King, one thing that I found was, well, it, I'll back up. Remember that first show that I told you about? I got to go to the what's called the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, Texas, which is basically the building from where Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shots. Oh, my okay. God. And it's a fascinating place. And the curator there at the time, he's since passed. Um, his name was Gary Mack. So it was part of my research for the writing, because I, after those, uh, I turned in the first draft, they said, oh, well, go check this out. Um, I went down there and Gary had been in local television in Dallas um, after the Kennedy assassination. But he had found out in the mid 80s that a lot of the local stations were going to throw out their raw tapes, you know, because they had rooms full of raw tapes from those like four days of mania in Dallas right. mm -hmm. you know, between Kennedy being shot and then Oswald being shot. And he sat down with me and um, started showing me the raw footage. And it was mesmerizing. Now, this isn't the cut to air pieces. Right. This is just, they let the cameras run like at the right. Dallas police station. And I remember saying to him, I said, you don't even need interviews for this stuff. I mean, you can just like let this play. And he said, yeah, you could. And that's where I got the initial idea to do a lot of these all archive shows that you mentioned. And the King show, the Martin Luther King show, uh, came about for the same reason. Uh, they wanted to do something, uh, if this was for Smithsonian Channel. And um, we had developed this style by then where we just let archive tell the story. It's very, very hard. There's not many people that do it. And we've done about 32 of them. And um, uh, we gather radio and television and any kind of print. And then we create a narrative out of it mm -hmm. and without interviews and no narrator i always joke that people start to watch one of our our archive shows and uh they're waiting for the narrator to show up and save them and the narrator never arrives so it becomes really immersive 
And it turned out that all of the local stations in Memphis, uh, they didn't keep their King footage from 1968. Wow. And I went to the, uh, the Lorraine Motel, which is now the National Civil Rights Museum, thinking they may have something. And I talked to the, uh, the head of the place. And Lorraine Motel was where King was killed. And uh, she, uh, she said, oh, if you want the local footage, you need to talk to this guy, Ed Frank, at the University of Memphis Special Collections Division. And it turned out the backstory is in 1968, the reason King went to Memphis is there was a sanitation worker strike. It had been going on since February. He was assassinated at the beginning of April. And the strike was really taking off in Memphis. And there were a group of university professors at the time that saw the strike as a big moment for Memphis in the civil rights movement. Sure. And so almost every day, they went around all the TV stations and all the radio stations and got from them the raw footage. And it's all housed at the university. He, I, we walked on this hallway, he opened the door, he goes, here you go. You know, it's like <laughs> film reels. And it was amazing. A gold mine. It was a gold mine. So we were able to tell the King story with footage and sound that no one had ever heard before. And it was wow. fascinating. However, I must say, and we've done so many of them, but by far, the one that became most famous was Diana in her own words. Sure. And I knew about, having been a journalist, I knew the story of Andrew Morton, who wrote the book. And um, uh, Andrew was uh, pilloried in the British press when his book came out in 1992, called Diana, Her True Story. And it basically exposed all the problems she was having with Charles and, you know, the whole Camilla thing and her bulimia. And, you know, this was just really scandalous stuff for them at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Diana died, Morton put out a revised edition of his book and basically let all the haters have it because it turned out that Diana had been the source for the book and he had the audio tapes of that she made mm. for him to prove it so he printed a lot of transcripts but he never released the tapes so i knew that he had these tapes and this was for the 20th anniversary of diana's death and um so i said the uh, national geographic asked me can you come up with something new about diana i'm like I think, you know, I don't know that there's any footage left that has, you know, I mean, what do you want me to do? And they were like, oh, you're a clever guy, Tom. You can figure it out. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So I called. So I knew about these tapes and uh, the way it had worked, just so you understand the backstory of the tapes is that Andrew Morton, the author, and Princess Diana had a mutual friend named Dr. James Coulter. And Diana decided that she wanted to get her story. But she couldn't be seen with like a royal reporter, which Morton was at the time. So she asked her friend, James, if he would talk to Andrew and see if he'd be interested in writing a book. And of course he was. Right. Cool. And so what they did was Andrew would write questions and uh, James Coulthers, he, would, he, he was a frequent visitor to Kensington Palace because he was friends with Diana and he would literally ride his bicycle up to the gates and he would get waved in. Well, in 1991, he rode his bike up to the Kensington Palace gates and get he was waved in multiple times over about seven months. And with him, he had questions from Andrew Morton and a tape recorder. And he and Diana would find some, I don't know, turret, you know, somewhere <laughs> where they could be alone. Right. And Colthurst would interview her. But the way she spoke, she was talking to like one of her best friends. So it wasn't like 60 minutes or, right. say, you know, some kind yeah. of uh, you very know, relaxed very, and candid. 
Oh, unbelievable. So th those were the tapes. Uh, so I thought, oh, maybe I could get the tapes. So I called Andrew Morton in London. And I said, uh, Andrew, you know, uh, here's what I am. Here's what I'm doing. And first thing he said was, get in line, mate. You're like the 2000th producer. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I thought he was going to hang up. I said, Andrew, wait, wait, wait. We do this completely different. There's no narration. We don't interview anyone. If you allow us to use these tapes, it would be like Diana narrating her story. Just her. And then we would have news reports from the time to help flesh it out. And there was this long pause, and I thought he'd hung up. And then he said, no one's ever asked me to do it that way. When can you come to London? Nice. Wow. And so I was on a plane the next day. <laughs> I flew to London. I landed in the morning. It was pouring rain. I got over to his publisher's office, a guy named Michael O'Mara. And this is like Harry Potter kind of stuff. You know, it's a thatched roof place with right. ivy on the walls. And, um, I met Andrew and uh, he showed me the original tapes, which they keep in a bank safe deposit box, but he got them. To I was like, oh, can I touch them? You know, <laughs> uh, and he had digitized them, you know, on his own computer. And he said, are you ready? And I said, yeah. And um, again, it was pouring rain. I remember because there was a skylight in this office. And for the next seven hours, we sat in silence listening to Princess Diana tell her story. And it was like she was in the room with us. That's crazy. And How amazing. How it was, fucking amazing. And then he turned it off. He goes, well, what do you think? And I said, I can't believe her laugh. That was the first thing I said. She was so fun <laughs> she, right. with her friend. And... Um, we made a deal with him and uh, uh, the show came out, but it was, I got kind of lost, even though, uh, even though it was so unique because there were like 40 Diana documentaries oh, at right. the time and uh, National Geographic, for whatever reason, licensed it out to Netflix. And so Netflix had it on for a little while and then season four of The Crown came on. And that's where Diana's problems with her marriage start. And they, so what they did is they, you know, when you look at Netflix, it's like, oh, if you like this, watch this. Right. They paired our documentary with The Crown. So like 20 million people. <laughs> yeah, kaboom, <laughs> explosion. And <yeah. laughs> uh, Netflix even, you know, if you recall, this wasn't too long ago where, uh, uh, I don't know if it was the palace, I don't think it was members of the royal family, they were demanding that Netflix put a disclaimer on the crown saying, this is a work of fiction. <laughs> and uh, uh, further promoting our film, they Netflix on Twitter and Instagram put a clip of our film on there. And they said, for those of you who have any doubt or have any additional questions, Please refer to Diana and her own. Words. Oh wow! <laughs> so they wow. used our film to say "screw you" to royal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got that going for me. <laughs> Incredible. I, I mean, I can't imagine as a writer. I mean, you're, you're not just researching and telling a story. You're living the story, like being in that that setting, yeah. listening for seven hours to Diana's story oh. in her own words. Like that's that's amazing. In a memory it was, that Jesus, it was yeah. crazy. I still, it's one of you know, uh, one of my best memories of all this work that I've done over the years. That just doesn't happen. That's right. like one. He, Andrew had told me when we finally made the deal, he said, You know, I was going to take these tapes to my grave, but the way you want to present it, I think it's worth doing. I mean, this right. is this is kind of like Indiana Jones stuff, there, Tom. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're finding the lost archives and the you yeah. Know, like, that just that yeah, blows me I mean, away. 
your description. There's always something more, yeah. you know, except the missing 18 minutes of the Nixon tapes. I bet, you know, that no one seems to be able to find the one. Well, it sounds like if anybody can, you will be able to. Right, well, I'll give it a go. <laughs> I keep there. sniffing around. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Absolutely incredible. To be a fly on the wall. My God. Yeah. Um, let's touch on this podcast, uh, Artifactual. I got yeah. to listen to it, and uh, by God, what a fun freaking <laughs> listen. I listened to uh, the Lincoln uh, assassination episode, the Pearl Harbor, and the uh, Edison uh, wax cylinders, because I'm very in- interested by that kind of stuff. And I'm just uh, curious, how how did the podcast come to fruition? And like, why were these topics not topics you wanted to take to a documentary format? And like, we're like, let's make a podcast of them. Well, Many of them uh, are included in our shows, like the Pearl Harbor broadcast. Okay. Most people aren't familiar with. We did, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, you know, in real time as the events unfolded that day. Um, However, the story behind the recording, we don't have time to tell because we're using the recording in real time to explain, you know, to help explain the story as it unfolds. We can't tell all the backstory about how the young reporter was cut off by a guy. Uh, Well, you listen to it. It's fascinating. What most people don't know is there was an actual live broadcast made by a young radio station guy while the bombing was going on. It's mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, and most people don't know it exists. It was made by an NBC guy. He called uh, NBC in New York. He got up on top of the Honolulu Tower so he could better see what was going on. And he's narrating the planes coming in and the ships blowing up. And all of a sudden, he gets cut off by this operator who says, you know, uh, we, we need to cancel this call. And the backstory, as you heard, is there was a very popular DJ in Hawaii at the time who would play great Hawaiian music, you know, Hawaii calls kind of thing. And um, when he woke up Sunday morning, they everyone was fearing an attack in Hawaii. And so when he woke up Sunday morning and the bombs were going off, he had been trained. Everybody had a job to do if there was an attack. So he had been trained to monitor communications in and out of Honolulu, uh, all the islands. And he heard this guy on the radio, you know, broadcasting through New York and the broadcast was coming back to Hawaii, you know, cause they put them on everywhere. Right. Right. And um, he called uh, the uh, operator, you know, back in the days when they have plugs and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, he said, cut him off. And um, cause uh, it was his job to make sure there were two reasons he was describing what was happening in the bay and he was afraid that the Japanese were listening in mm. and then they would know, you know, what to do. And also the planes used the radio signals from Honolulu in their uh, aircraft to guide them in. Remember they flew hundreds right. of miles. Right. And so they were like, Oh, well, radio back then was a perfect barometer for them to key in on so they used radio so this guy cuts the person off the live broadcast ends and we wind up finding the whole backstory to this and now and and as you know we interviewed the son of the guy who cut off that broadcast and today he too is a dj in Hawaii, <laughs> playing Hawaiian music, you know. So there's all of this great stuff behind the material we find, but the way we present the material, um, you know, there's no room in the storytelling to tell you that story because we got to keep moving along. Right, right. I love that. Uh, so it's it's an extension on stuff that's already out there to some extent. 
Correct. I loved that. You know, I mean, emphasizing what you've already said, how how this came to be, how you guys yourselves came to acquire it, and then you get to hear it. it it's it's so uh, entertaining. I, I, it's it's a new favorite listen of mine. I'm going to have to keep <laughs> yeah. indulging on it. I saw the newest episode. It looks like it posted today is about finding the James Bond cars. Yeah. So that's uh, that's exciting. That's I, a I good Bond. one. Did you uh, – well, yeah, uh, um, one of my favorites, you know, what people don't get about the type of shows we do is that when we deliver to a network, every image, every sound has a piece of paper attached to it for rights and clearances. And sure. this is uh, we uh, in uh, the real rights stuff, which I think is one of our best about the Mercury astronaut. Sure. We found this song on um a local TV, you know, raw tape by this little trio in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Because remember, when the space program began in that area, Cocoa Beach and surrounding areas went from sleepy little towns to thousands and thousands of people living there and visiting there because people wanted to watch these massive rockets go off. So it became all the rage in 1960. 596061 and we found this uh clip uh of this uh, uh band called the We 3 Trio and they sing and we made a podcast about it they sing this song about all the the Mercury 7 and they name them all and how you know what their foibles and faults are and it's got this kind of like jazzy bluesy vibe to it and when one of my researchers found it, I said, we have to get that song. We have to get that song. And we were making this for Disney, Disney Plus. And Disney is very, very particular about rights and clearances, sure. especially with music, because there's all kinds of uh, things that are required in order to use music. <clears throat> so uh, we started trying to track the We Three Trio from Cocoa Beach, Florida. And uh, good luck with that because apparently <laughs> they were only around for six months. Oh, wow. And and so then, you know, we were there was no copyright on the song. Uh, there was no um, publishing, which is who wrote the song. You know, we went everywhere we could possibly find or look. And uh, it came to this. We found out uh, where one of the, it was two women and a, a guy. And we found out uh, where um, the guy in the band had passed away maybe 20 years ago. And we found the funeral hall where they had his service. And we called the funeral home and funeral homes are great at keeping records. We said, do you have any information about the next of can? You know, we explained it and they're like, this is the most bizarre thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we found that guy's son who said, Oh, I don't, I don't even remember that stuff. You know, and uh, but he wound up signing a release for us so we could use the song. Uh, I mean, that's the links sometimes we have to go to to use this material. It's not like we just throw it on television. Everything has to be curated, properly edited, and then all the rights have to be acquired in order for broadcast. And it's crazy. That's that an remember. adventure. That's yeah. an Indiana Jones. <laughs> that's what I was getting ready to say. Yeah, that's yeah. that's like Indiana Jones meet Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> It's it's, crazy. A, it's fun. I I'm very lucky and I that I uh, that I have this job and do what I do, and it speaks to you know my roots in Cleveland. Uh, you know, growing up and then trying to remember what it was like, and um, you know I always tell my staff that uh, you know the way we look at this is um, what have I never seen? What don't I remember? And what did I forget? Because there's, I mean, we live in a visual content age and right, have right. You know, since World War II, really, even a bit earlier. But there's so much stuff in the world um, that all you got to do is start looking and be smart about it. And you never know where this stuff is going to turn up. It's fascinating what you can find. 
and especially everything you've found over your career. My God, look at your IMDb. Like you've got to, <laughs> you have to have the most insight on history than anybody that's out there. I can't imagine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, we. I love telling history stories. I don't know why. It's like writing. It's, it's just part of who I am. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it's part journalism too. It's research and telling stories, and in an entertaining way. It's funny every time we do one of those archive-only shows, we get it like halfway done, and I, I think there's not enough material here. This is the one that isn't going to work. It's not going to work. We don't have enough stuff. And they always work. Yeah, we always yeah. figure out a way to tell the story. And um, you know what we use, if from a storytelling point of view, you might find this interesting. You may have heard of The Hero's Journey, made popular by Joseph Campbell, which is the foundation for Star Wars, uh, you know, okay, yeah, Indiana okay. Jones, you know. The hero is naive, has to venture out mm -hmm. into the world, has to slay the dragons. We use that for these all archive things because otherwise you're just throwing a bunch of footage together. Right. So like in the real right stuff, you know, the astronauts are a character that follows the hero's journey. The astronauts' families become a character. The spacecraft becomes its own hero's journey. The uh, people at NASA, you know, so uh, the American public. So you have all these storylines firing and what's nice is people don't notice and they shouldn't notice, but it helps signpost us throughout, you know, how to use all of this stuff right. to our advantage. And that's how we do it. I mean, we just get everything we can put our hands on and then we start to tell multiple stories at the same time. And for some reason, it still works. Thank God. That's incredible. Um, I, I did, uh, was told to ask you about, or suggested I ask you about your shock doc stuff. Uh, specifically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, big uh, Halloween fan. I've always loved the Amityville horror and kind of the paranormal and stuff like that. So do you have a few minutes that you could kind of... Yeah, um, again, because we, uh, uh, well... Shock Docs came about because, um, you know, we had found crazy recordings of people telling ghost stories. Okay. Uh, yeah. From like the 1930s. Okay. And, and, and I thought, we should try and do something like that. And, uh, you know, Travel Channel is the home for all things kind of creepy mm -hmm. and paranormal. Right. And so uh, I approached their network executives and they liked that stuff, but they said, you know, we need more marquee um, stories. You know, mm -hmm. that's what hooks people in. And uh, so we started searching around and we found all kinds of great stuff uh, for things like the, the true story of the exorcist, which most people don't know the true story. It was actually about a boy and not a girl. You know, they think of the movie. It actually happened in St. Louis, not Washington, D.C., and we were able to, and the Amityville Horror, we did the story of Ed and Lorraine uh, Warren, who oh, were involved yeah. in the Conjuring stuff. <laughs> and we were able to find, you know, if you look hard enough, there's a lot of stuff out there that <laughs> no one's ever used in documentaries. The difference is we did do interviews for those because the network wanted it. it. It would have been pretty tough to tell some of those with, uh, you know, in our old style format, but they were able to kind of celebrate this series by saying, you know, we've got all this stuff that you've never seen or heard before, which is a good hook for right. a network uh, to, um, you know, try and get the word out or, you know, the favor, all networks use this phrase now, um, does it cut through the noise? They constantly say, <laughs> does it cut through the noise? And it's not even about ratings anymore as much as um, cutting through the noise. Do people pay attention? Gotcha. Does it get written up in newspapers? Is it on a podcast? You know, um, does it cut through the noise? And Shock Docs cuts through the noise. And uh, we have a couple more we did that are coming. They're coming out soon, but I can't, they haven't announced them yet. And um, they're a lot of fun. 
you know, because, and they're really well-made. The, the, I mean, let's face it, the true story of the exorcist is not parallel to the assassination of Martin Luther King. Right, by right. Any, but we em employ the same techniques in telling the story. So they wind up being really solid, well-done documentaries like you've never seen before. Plus all this additional material that, uh, you know, fleshes out the stories in ways that uh, I didn't even think was possible, but there is a lot of stuff out there. So we take our journalistic solid approach. We don't try and sensationalize these stories. They're sensational enough on their face, right? but we try and tell what really went down. I mean, whether you choose to believe it or not, like the Amityville horror was a major news event. Right. Right. Now, Everybody talked about it. You know, there was mm -hmm. the, the Fayo murders that happened in the house a year before right. the family moved in. So there's all kinds of archive associated with it. And we were able to, you know, go through and find all this terrific stuff that, uh, you know, hadn't been broadcast since the event happened. Incredible. <laughs> My God. You've heard some amazing stories in your time, haven't you? My God. Um, very long. <laughs> yeah. As far as uh, what to expect from yourself, the podcast, from documentaries in the future, I know how NDAs can be and stuff, so I know there's some stuff you can't talk about, but are there things that you can uh, prep us for coming around the bend? Uh, the big push at the networks now is like big character, like a Gordon Ramsay type of thing. They, uh, they use, and this is not particular to any one of them, that they're all using this kind of same words, which is authentic, adventure. They don't want anything that feels strained. I don't know how much history programming we're going to be able to do, but, um, you know, there's always room for it. And uh, so we're looking at uh, ever, uh, we're all over the map trying to figure out what's next for us. We are busy. Uh, I've been able to keep everyone employed during the pandemic, although I haven't seen most of my staff in 18 months, other than in two dimensions on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I miss them, um, yeah. but they're, you know, they're all professionals. They know what needs to be done. So we're looking for ways to incorporate, you know, like we're, uh, we're creating this new kind of animation. I can tell you one thing that we found that <clears throat> we've yet to sell, but I love, and we may do a podcast on this just because I want to get it out there. Again, hearkening back to the, like uh, the, the podcast about the Lincoln, the eyewitness to the Lincoln. Yeah, sure. Well, in the 1930s, that's when recorded sound started to get pretty good. There were professionals like us who said, oh, we should interview people from when there was no recorded sound. So like or, the Wagner no, stuff. And right. And we have found to date about 100 first person accounts of people who survived the sinking of the Titanic. Oh and my God. <laughs> yeah, from all over the world. I mean, you know, some of it's professional radio, some of it's uh, uh, literally someone sat down at a kitchen table with some kind of reel to reel and said, Grandma was on the Titanic. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. And it's unreal to, because we don't associate like the people who were on the Titanic. No, you being don't. Being able to tell us. Right what it was like to be on it and then survive it. And so we've been kind of working that up and a, a lot of places that we've been talking to have said, yeah, but how are you gonna show it? How are you gonna show it? So we are, uh, we've created this kind of like uh, graphic novel style of animation. You can tell the story in kind of an edgy graphic novel kind of style. You are speaking. So imagine our way the Titanic, <laughs> imagine that, which I know you guys love. So um, imagine the story of the Titanic, like a graphic novel told only by the people who were on the ship. 
Oh, oh my God! Sign yes. me up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, if I had my wallet on you on me, I'd be handing yeah. it to yeah. you right now. That sounds amazing. That that is a good example of how we're trying to evolve. We found cool stuff. How are you going to show it? Okay, let's take it to the next level because there's very little archive of the Titanic right. and obviously none of the sinking. Sure. So let's think outside the box and we came up with that. That's and amazing. nowadays when anyone thinks of the Titanic, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Celine <laughs> Dion. You know, they're not thinking about the, like you said, they're not associating those people to it. No. And my God, how incredible that would be. I, I await with bated breath, my friend. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I, well, I, I, we will sell that, but we have to show them that we can make it this way. And uh, the way we're going to do it is like nothing anyone has ever seen. They certainly haven't seen the Titanic story this way. They certainly have never heard the people who were on the ship. Right. Absolutely. Story. I mean, it's fascinating i mean to hear guys who jumped in the water from 80 feet and oh, women that were on lifeboats and people were dying all the i mean it, it's tragic and fascinating at the same time and it's such an iconic story yeah but yet we're thinking of jack and rose right and they didn't exist they right, weren't really right. <laughs> and um so you're going to get to hear it from the real people who were on board that ship and you're going to be highly entertained with how we present it visually. So we're always, it's like, Hey, if you don't want to do, uh, you know, the all archive thing, because we've done so many of them and you think the audience won't tune in anymore, even though we still get good ratings, let's do it like this, you know? So we're trying to yeah. figure out ways to make that happen again awaiting that yeah. so eagerly. <laughs> and I just want to thank you uh, for taking time to talk with us this evening. This has been beyond interesting and fascinating. And I think I have a Diana documentary to go watch this evening if I can <laughs> find it somewhere. But I want to encourage all of our listeners to, uh, one, just look up Tom Jennings on IMDb because you get to see so many of the things he's done on there. Second, check out that podcast, Artifactual. Uh, we're going to have links to these things yes. in the description for this episode uh, and uh, 1895films.com. I think, is there any, is there anywhere else I should be directing people, Tom? No, those are the main, uh, we have a Facebook page for 1895 films and we also have Twitter and Instagram, you know, we find fascinating things and let people know, but those are the major places. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, my friend, thank you once again, and happy holidays to you, sir. And to you both as well. All right. And that was our conversation again with Tom Jennings. Damn, that was a lot of fun. It was a blast. And I, you know, definitely want to get him back on in the future. With Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think we had, I don't know if I, I, I haven't edited yet, but I don't know if I left in the part where we talked off air, but we were talking about possibly getting together in the future uh, when they're when doing projects in the area. So hopefully that comes to fruition. Uh what a hell of a nice guy. Would yeah. love to sit around and uh, shoot the shit with him for a while. But Yeah, absolutely. But until then, Randy, what do we have on the website? Go to candairpodcast.com. Check out uh, previous uh, episodes. Check out the special guests we've had on, uh, our Hall of Heroes, links to merchandise, links to Patreon. And if you want to come on the show, there's a form for that, too. So check us out. Go to the website. A little bit of something for everyone. And uh, speaking of which, you can also find us on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And uh, on that fancy little website Randy was talking about, that Patreon page, yet again, a uh, good way for you to support us a little bit. Uh, every month gets you a lot in return. Uh, there's a catalog of well over 40 episodes of the Candair Patreon pod and just so many more things that you can uh, indulge in on there. All jesting aside, if you're doing a very long, boring drive to family members this holiday season, turn us on. We'll hopefully make the drive a little bit shorter. The very first Patreon episode we ever did was your, uh, we made a brand new Christmas playlist. There you go. Unconventional <laughs> Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas songs that uh, people may not hear on your normal uh, in your department stores on your Christmas radio stations but here in the Candare Nation boy 
they they resonate, right? <laughs> Just one of the many things on there. So um, unless there's anything else, is there anything else, Randy? I don't think so. I think that's going to do it for this episode. So a big thanks to Tom Jennings. And until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Randy Hardenbrook. Be excellent to each other, everyone. are mean, so I'm running away from home. Where are you gonna go? I don't know yet, but that'll show them. <laughs> it sure will. Shipwreck! Parents just don't understand, and it gets lonely on the road, so be sure to listen to the Candare podcast. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. This has been a Candare production. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.